What would you do if almost every public space where you felt safest, most affirmed, and best cared for in your city began to disappear? What if very few of those spaces were replaced with similarly welcoming establishments? And in their absence, you could never be certain when visiting someplace new that your presence would not be policed, judged, protested, or objectified. In Baltimore City, many queer and trans residents experience this uncertainty all the time. Despite having been, by some local accounts, a comparatively queer-friendly place at turns throughout the 20th century, with gay bars, lesbian bookstores, queer artist collectives, and drag balls accessible in various neighborhoods in the city, Baltimore is currently experiencing a rapid state of flux. As queer-friendly spaces have gradually disappeared, no new protected public havens have cropped up in their place, leaving thousands of Baltimoreans in unstable positions when it comes to everything from housing, employment, and medical care to nightlife, dance parties, and watering holes. Queer and trans residents have been taking these matters into their own hands, curating and hosting their own salons and parties, helping each other navigate the local legal system when necessary, and even providing each other with healthcare options that are inclusive and sensitive to their needs. But they shouldn't have to. So how can cisgender people, or people who identify as the gender they were assigned at birth, help to make the city an easier space for trans people to navigate? How can straight people preserve the few remaining resources created for queer residents? And most importantly, how can we all hold each other better accountable so that some of the most vulnerable communities in our city can someday feel safer than they do now? As you might imagine, the solutions aren't simple. The problem is complex. But we hope that it will be pretty clear by the end of this episode that Baltimore, and likely all American cities, have plenty of work left to do, one step or sachet at a time. I'm Stacia Brown, and this is The Rise of Charm City, Episode 15. Queers looking at you, sis. Historically, Baltimore has a decent reputation of progressivism on LGBTQ issues. Historian Richard Aloysia has been conducting LGBTQ history walking tours with the local historic initiative Baltimore Heritage for three years. The tours are concentrated in two city neighborhoods that have been essential to queer life here for decades, Charles Village and Mount Vernon. Uh, Let's see. We talked some in Mount Vernon Square about three of the five women who helped to fund the Hopkins Medical School. Hopkins, I believe, was founded in 1876, and it wasn't until about 16 or 17 years later that the medical school got off the ground. It took a half million dollars worth of fundraising on the part of those five women in order to make it happen. And of those five women, three were lesbians. Though Hopkins is certainly well-funded nowadays, early on in the school's history, the university had much less money, so they really were dependent on that fundraising on the part of that group of five women. And those women insisted that the school be open to women as well as men. Among the earliest rosters of female medical school attendees at Johns Hopkins is a student whose name you might recognize. Gertrude Stein lived in Mount Vernon as well. She went to Hopkins Medical School for a few years until she dropped out, moved to Paris, and became a famous writer. While queer-identified white women were making their mark at Johns Hopkins University at the turn of the 20th century... Baltimore's black queer communities, gay black men in particular, were carving out their own space for freedom of expression. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, 
an era called the pansy craze descended on big cities like New York, New Orleans, and Chicago. Out gay performers and audiences dressed in drag and performed in nightclubs, freely engaging in a social and romantic culture that a large segment of the country still considered risque or controversial. For several years, the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper covered the city's own contributions to the pansy craze, annual pansy balls held at the Elks Club. And so there they are, front page article in 1931 about these pansy balls, and nowadays we would call them drag balls, but they were seen in some ways as debutante balls. This was really during the time when the Harlem Renaissance was invoked. The 1931 Afro article began, quote, The coming out of new debutantes into homosexual society was the outstanding feature of Baltimore's eighth annual frolic of the pansies, end quote. Nightlife has always been integral to gay and lesbian culture in Baltimore, but public spaces to freely socialize were scant in the early 20th century, with one notable exception, Leon's. There's been a bar in continuous existence at, the, at this spot since the 1890s. Back at the turn of the 20th century, it was called George's Tap Room, and during the era of, era of prohibition, it was a speakeasy. Before it became a gay bar, it was sort of an artsy-fartsy, hipster, beatnik, bohemian sort of hangout that was popular with students from the Maryland Institute, for example. But since 1957, it has been a gay bar. And even before that, that time, it's, it had a gay-straight clientele. For a long time, when... Bob Davies owned it on the other side on uh, Chase Street was Tyson Place. And the fascinating thing about that was that there was a passageway between Leon's and Tyson Place and you could walk between the two bars. So if you didn't want to go into a gay bar but you wanted to go into a gay bar, the thing to do was to enter through Tyson Place and walk through that passageway. And so as a result, there were celebrities, people like Liberace or Joan Rivers, who would show up at Leon's and they were taken in by their promoter when they were here you know, on an engagement. Not far from Leon's is the intersection of Chase Street and Braxton Alley, near the headquarters of the then-named Baltimore Gay Alliance, one of the early community service and organizing initiatives for the city's gay residents. Over the years, the name of the organization changed as it attempted to become more inclusive and welcoming to everyone who identified as queer. It is currently known as the Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center of Baltimore and Central Maryland, or the GLCCB. Much of the city's LGBTQ history can be traced to the GLCCB. LGBTQ activist and elder Lewis Hughes Jr. recalls the founding of the first gay male health clinic there. In the 70s, I read in the Baltimore Sun that the CDC had sent a doctor to Baltimore to deal with a sexually transmitted disease epidemic, which is prevalent in the black community in disproportionate numbers and the gay community. So I invited him to be our speaker. He asked if, he says, the CDC wants to fund STD clinics, you know, and a gay STD clinic. And he said, are you interested? I said, yeah. So that's where uh, Chase Brexton started. The clinic, now owned and operated independently of the GLCCB, has grown into a citywide health system, still called Chase Brexton, after its first location. It serves low-income residents of all stripes, but still centers itself as a queer welcoming medical community first and foremost. The women's community, the transgender community, the elder community that I'm a part of, you know, uh, all kind of services are there. So I'm proud every day 
These brief highlights of LGBTQ history in Baltimore City are far from exhaustive. To learn more about queer culture in the city in the 19th and early 20th centuries, we'd encourage you to take the Baltimore Heritage Walking Tour or read the photo retrospective book, LGBT Baltimore, which Richard Aloysia co-authored. Next up, we'll visit the very out and proud local counterculture of the 1960s and the activism of the 1970s and 80s. Baltimore's gay and lesbian activism came into its own in the 1970s, when passing legislation that protected LGBT interests became imperative. Activist and historian Lewis Hughes Jr. recalls the first national LGBT March on Washington. I met Audre Lorde and all these great people in the 79. I actually missed Audre Lorde's address that Sunday morning because I had to return to Baltimore and actually bring a busload of people. Well, I'm glad you all waited because as usual, we saved some of the best for last. I could take no more great pleasure and privilege than in sharing a stage with the following person, the fantastic Audrey Lord. Oh my God. 30 years ago, the first time I came to Washington, my family and I couldn't eat ice cream in a drugstore here because we were black. Now, since then, I have come to Washington many times to demonstrate and to testify to different aspects of myself and my beliefs. And I see many familiar faces from those past marches here today. For lesbians and gay men have always been in the vanguard of struggles for liberation and justice in this country and within our communities. The first national conference of third world lesbians and gay men met in Washington over the past four days and it was an outstanding success. I had to see some of that on pictures and tell people tell me about it. But um, it was a busy time in the 70s. A lot of things were happening. Louise Kelly, who co-authored the book LGBT Baltimore with Richard Aloysia, recalls the 1970s in Baltimore as a creative and lively time for members of the lesbian, gay, and queer communities, if not a racially harmonious one. Club Mitchell was a piece of work. I wish I could say it was always a welcoming and wonderful place, but it wasn't. They went through different periods where they didn't admit black women, and then they got confronted about it and backed off from that. She says that the racial discrimination she witnessed mostly took place in bars. Two things happened. One is that black and white men together sued bars that, you know, were discriminating and they could prove it. Um, particularly there were some bars in the Homewood area at, near Johns Hopkins. There were several gay bars that opened there and, and one of them was notorious for hassling black men. And then uh, the hippo, they, I don't think they got taken to court, but the hippo got confronted. Mr. Hughes remembers Club Hippo's era of discriminatory practices firsthand. The wonderful hippo was very segregated. My own mother got discriminated when she accompanied me because she left her pocketbook at home knowing she's going to a disco, and they wouldn't let us in because she's a black female. 
and uh, they were carding with several types of ID, maybe even your birth certificate uh, at the hippo. And, and that's ironic because that site was the club Chanticleer. And as the end of the Chanticleer's existence, it was a black club. So I didn't cry when the hippo closed. Some black LGBTQ said, why are we bothering trying to get into the white bars? Let's go to ours. Miss Kelly was an early reporter for the Baltimore Gay Paper, which she says sprung up from a need to serve the city's steadily growing queer communities. What the founders decided, the founders of the Gay Paper, of which I was one, is that we needed a newspaper um, to get the word out about both local and national stories because, um, you know, there was a national movement, for one thing, and there wasn't a clear way to communicate with people who were now starting to come out in greater numbers. She says that the paper, along with gathering spaces like the erstwhile Bread and Roses Coffee House and the 31st Street Bookstore, were essential to spreading the word about events and social action taking place around the city. Well, 31st Street Bookstore was probably the first community organization that we had that was for both lesbians and gay men. It focused more on lesbians and children, because that's what the books were about. But it did um, outreach to gay men, and 31st Street was a mecca for homeowners that were LGBT. A lot of women owned houses on Abel Avenue and Barclay, all in that area. So they were within walking distance of the bookstore. And it was also fun, because you could meet people there, and there wasn't the same kind of... um, atmospheres there would be in a bar. The bars were also fun. Um, I especially enjoyed drag shows myself, but the bookstore, you know, you could go there and just, I don't know, feel safe, look at the books, talk to somebody, and if you were coming out, as, as many young people were then, it was a place to connect. At that time, even the term transgender didn't exist yet. And so I didn't know how to characterize myself. This is Monica Yorkman, local activist and elder. I was a homeless youth in Baltimore in 1970. After leaving home at the age of 16, Monica ended up staying with a couple who lived not too far from the house she'd just left. They were kind of an interesting couple. as a gay man and his bi-girlfriend. And um, and they had a friend named Rusty. And so what I know today is she was the first trans person that I ever met. She was the first person to properly dress me. And we ended up at a place called the Open House Restaurant. And it's where the Paper Moon is now. It was an all-night diner. And it was where I met the first other trans women. A lot of them were just drag queens. But some of them were trans women. And so that was in 1970. Though Monica's experiences were distinct from the gay and lesbian historians we spoke to, she noted a similar segregation in trans communities, particularly among trans sex workers. Back then, um, I used to walk the stroll, and we walked all across North Avenue, across the Howard Street Bridge, and back up. And at that time, most of the women that walked the stroll on that part of town were white transsexuals. Um, The black transsexuals walked the stroll on Calvert from Baltimore Street up to about 22nd, 23rd Street. You know, so there were 
two strolls. There's always been some level of violence. One of the differences is back then, a lot of transgender women had apartments. And so um, there was a lot less street-level violence, and there was a lot less street-level crime because women had places to go. There were even apartments on Calvert Street that could be rented to transgender women that you know, just went away. And so you had landlords now that were trying to sell condos, you know, for three and four hundred thousand dollars. And that was way out of the price range that was way out of the price range of anybody in the neighborhood. And so it created a homeless class, frankly, and a homeless class of transgender women. Monica says that homelessness is just one of many factors that have led to a deep disparity between the life expectancies of the city's black trans residents and those of other residents. This last time I transitioned, um, I was 48 years old. Okay. And so what was horrifying to me when I transitioned, I found out that at the age that I transitioned, I'd already, I was already beyond the lifespan of most black transsexuals. That most transgender women, in this city anyway, die before age 40 or are killed before age 40. So many transgender women die from street-level violence, from sexual violence, from um, domestic partner violence, from other forms of street-level violence, from suicide. And it just, it was unacceptable. The other part of of that narrative is also found out that um, that the police and law enforcement were implicitly involved in that. Monica's discoveries about local law enforcement's unlawful interaction with the city's black trans community was detailed in a 164-page Department of Justice report released in August of 2016. It included profiling, harassment, and assault. A co-founder of the Baltimore Transgender Alliance, Monica believes that change will come gradually and through a number of policy initiatives. We just had a transgender census that was finished just at the end of 2016. And so what we're looking at now, I don't have the final numbers, but the estimate is between five and 10,000 trans and queer-identified people in this city. And so what we're looking at now is getting as many as possible registered to vote and looking at that as um, a significant demographic. You know, because, I mean, anytime we have a mayor who won with 42,000 votes, that means we represent like 25% of the winning margin. You know, so that's enough to get somebody's attention. She's also organizing around restoring one of the city's most trans-inclusive communities to its former grandeur. Be More United is um, something that just over the past couple of weeks I've been brainstorming about. I'm trying to model it after something that happened in the 70s in Waverly. Somewhere around 1968, there was a lesbian collective called the Red Wagon Collective that started a daycare center and united with the Black Panthers to start the People's Free Clinic. And they started People's Free Clinic because in the 60s and 70s, mainstream hospitals would not allow hippies in the hospital. Monica says that the community building didn't stop there. After the clinic came a queer-run vegetarian restaurant called Stone Soup, as well as an expansive community garden and a commune inside a converted funeral home, along with a free farm. Because the problem with capitalist models is when you do something like this, 
all of the capital gets sucked out of the model, and, and it's always funneled toward an individual, and it's not fed back into the community. And so we want to do something that feeds it back into the community. Though the fight for racial equity in the city's social spaces continues even today, by the mid to late 1970s and throughout the 1980s, as the battle for gay rights and the AIDS crisis converged in Baltimore City, black and white LGBTQ residents fought alongside one another to find solutions. Next up, we'll hear about the passage of the city's first gay rights bill after three hard-fought attempts. In some cities, when AIDS hit, the city might not have responded the way it did, but Baltimore responded strongly and with compassion. Lesbian historian, activist, and writer Louise Kelly. It did also have discrimination against people with AIDS, but I don't know. People mobilized. Straight people, gay people, transgender people, lesbians came together and decided we're going to do something about this because people are dying. And I don't care anymore about what you do in bed. You had a, um, a group of people with a medical mindset as opposed to a bigot mindset or a, uh, you know, my God doesn't like what you do mindset. The people in power that could provide the medical care were not perfect, but they did care. Another city institution whose record with LGBT Baltimoreans was imperfect was city government. Ms. Kelly recalls the multiple attempts and direct action initiatives it took to finally pass a gay rights bill in the city. I went to all three attempts, including the winning one. The, the big change between, I would say, that defeat with Du Burns and what happened in 87 is that the community got a chance to really organize and be energized um, around lesbian and gay rights nationally because there was the March on Washington. And also, we lost a lot of friends to AIDS. I did anyway. And when that happened, we said, okay, this is not just a quality of life issue anymore. This is not just jobs. This is our lives. We have to get this protection in place. And we came back from the march and seeing the Names Project quilt, and, and we went at it. I mean, door knocking, lists, phone calls, begging, being spit on in elevators at City Hall. And we just didn't stop until we got it done. Thanks to Kurt Schmoke and Mary Pat Clark and Tony Ambridge and a bunch of other people, but that's what it took. It felt like I, I could finally hold my head up, be free. Because I hadn't even been aware of how scared I'd been for how long until that happened. And I knew it had happened elsewhere, and I was just like, this is the city I love. I, I want this protection here. What did it feel like when the legislation was finally passed? Everything changed. They, 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 the police couldn't pick on us anymore. And then... You know, we, we had this flowering of, of the way people could be with each other and how open we could be. I mean, I walked to, to Charles Street and saw two people holding hands who were the same gender and said, the world has changed. Because people just didn't do that before. 
It's my world that I want to have a little pride in. My world, and it's not a place I have to hide in. Life's not worth a damn till you can say I am what I am. Next up, we'll hear from a few groundbreaking millennials about the current climate for queer and trans young people in Baltimore City. You've been listening to The Rise of Charm City on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. In Baltimore and in this country, trans people are getting younger, while old white guy in power is getting older. And we're getting, we're getting younger and we're getting smarter. And that's because we're very intentionally thinking about concentrations of power in our community, concentrations of power in the activism in our community, and how to call in and empower the younger, young queer and trans people who are, who are now ready ready to critique us. My name is Ava Pipitone. I'm the executive director of the Baltimore Transgender Alliance. I'm also a worker owner at Red Emma's Coffee House and Bookstore. About three years ago, um, we experienced a similar uptick in violence against um, trans people, specifically black trans women in Baltimore City, um, resulting in the uh, death at the hands of police of Maya Hall, the, um, and the, the murder of Mia Henderson. Um, and there, were, there was trans organizing happening, right? There were groups happening, there were support groups, there were social aspects, and there were some political aspects, but they all existed under umbrellas of LGB organizing. Though Ava says the trans community is appreciative of gay, lesbian, and queer allies, the conflation of gender and sexuality can be frustrating. LGB, these are concepts that deal with sexuality. T is a concept that deals with bodies. We are always lumped in with LGB. That is active erasure. So when Mia Henderson was murdered... In 2014, at the age of 26... There was a vigil. And it was raining. And three people showed up. Okay? Um, Three weeks ago, when Alfonso was killed, a couple blocks from my house... um, we called a vigil and a hundred plus people showed up and all the news outlets covered it. Um, Like that's concrete, right? And not only that, but the news reporters reading the stories on like WJZ, like there was emotion for loss of trans life. Alfonso Peaches Watson was killed in late March, 2017. Watson's was the eighth known homicide of a trans person in 2017. All of the victims were women of color. That means that the reporter must have seen Alfonso as not only like a human, but like someone who has family, someone who has like you know history and life experiences. And there, there's emotion conjured in people now for loss of trans life. And then I, you know, and now me because of my position at the Alliance. Um, like I had, I was doing jury duty the, the couple of days after, and the security officers or whatever at jury duty were all saying, "I'm sorry for your loss." Like that, that's a real shift, real shift in the city. Ava believes change on issues like these is marked by ebbs and flows, and progress is relative. The movers and shakers in this city. What institutions 
mess this city up and like have an overwhelming control over the economy. Um, Johnny Hopkins, right? So in the 60s, Hopkins was a pioneer for Western, the Western world, understanding medical, medical technology around gender transition. Hopkins became the place to go to for trans-affirming surgeries, therapies, um, and, and hormone treatments. So it was great. It was, it was a wonderful force. And then someone comes along. Um, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. So whatever doctor came along. Dr. Paul McHugh, former psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins. And said, you know, nope. The Bible says there are two sexes and you can't change sex. And he literally defunds, erases, and stigmatizes. And to this day, we're still recovering from that. McHugh successfully campaigned to end gender-affirming surgery at Hopkins in 1979. In 2016, Johns Hopkins Medicine issued a letter to the public stating its commitment to resume such surgeries in the near future. Three years ago, what people thought when they thought trans women, um, they jump right to sex work, they jump right to disposable, they jump right to just negative, negative, no value objects. So we are recentering that morbid news headline with stories of thriving, contributing, growing trans people. <sighs> the city's changing so fast. For someone who is trans and is queer, I can feel that trajectory. I can feel um, like elements of rape culture and elements of misogyny just like infiltrating into these previous sanctuaries. And I think it's on cis people to hold the walls of those sanctuaries and to call out people. And it's not on people that um, need those sanctuaries to uh, do all the work of maintaining them. Other queer millennials are also concerned with finding space to freely express themselves in the city, including visual artist and rapper T.T. the Artist. City is changing in different ways. On one hand, we lost a lot of um, spaces where, you know, we could party at and, you know, like venues. But on the other hand, we are gaining a little more creative spaces that are meant for the purpose of building um, and nurturing the creative mind of the artist. For me, I felt like right after the Hippo shutdown, which the Hippo was a venue that every Thursday night, you know, young black queer folk come out, party, and it was one of those just staples in the community, and when it shut down, you lost about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people had nowhere to really go to meet others like them, and so I felt like I created, I wanted to create Chorality because I wanted to offer a space for all people. Queerology is a queer artist salon featuring film, dance, and music. T.T. the Artist founded it as a monthly gathering, and Baltimore City Paper named it Best Queer Party in 2016. There was never really a target race for Queerology. For me, Queerology was all about serving the LGBT community. My name is Abdu Ali. I am a musician, writer, and multimedia curator based in Baltimore. Ali attended historic Baltimore City College, or City, and considers it one of his earliest queer-affirming public spaces. It was a liberal arts college prep high school, and it was 
Now, filled with all these beautiful teachers. As far as being like queer and black, like it was, it was cool because mostly everybody was gay. <laughs> something, <laughs> you know, it was definitely a lot of you know gay, bi, lesbian people in our high school, and it wasn't as oppressed as I hear it was in other schools. Baltimore club and dance music, dancing was a very big part of a lot of black youth society and culture. And I was just hitting Miss Tony all the time, like everywhere, and all over the place, and people knew about Miss Tony. Miss Tony said, How you want a card? Miss Tony said, How you want a card? Miss Tony said, How you want a card? What's up? What's up? Yeah, like I came out as a junior and didn't really get too much backlash from like my school, my like my peers and community, because it was already, already a bunch of people was out. We had like a gay and straight alliance at our school, which a lot of schools didn't have and don't still don't have. So, you know, it was it was more of a positive thing. And I think, yeah, in other schools it might have I don't think it was it was it was like that. I was fortunate to be in that kind of space. I feel like Baltimore has space for GLBTQI people to exist in their own safe spaces, like the Buns, Third Saturdays and at the Paradox, um, the GLBTQ, I Center. You know, it was like resources around, which a lot of cities <laughs> don't be at. At that time, definitely did not have, you know what I'm saying? Like TT the Artist, Ali creates his own parties by necessity. I try to curate a lot of inclusive, safe-feeling spaces, because I honestly don't really think... Any spaces besides your room, it can be safe for you. you know, I think that term needs to be actually critiqued more and not used as much as it's in the way it's used. But I try to create spaces where people feel comfortable to be who they are as far as when it comes to my parties and events. Because, you know, I'm an other-other and I want to feel comfortable and I want my peers who are also most likely other-others to feel comfortable and be able to express themselves freely in a creative environment but these days that's it's weird it's like we moved on as a society as far as GLBTQI rights and you know women's rights or whatever but I feel like in the same vein we haven't (laughs) and in reality like our spaces are actually being taken from us yet the media or like current my society portrays America to be in like a very progressive, but it's really not. It's kind of like Twilight Zone. It's really kind of crazy because and it took a lot of the spaces away from from the GLBTQ community in Baltimore. It's not that many places to go, and definitely not no spaces for people kind of black people. Like no, a lot of my music I tried to create. Out of the choruses, create mantras that people that resonate with people, um, and also make people feel very present. And so I try to create these very simple mantras, but they are profound and they resonate deeply with people. For me, I'm alive means a lot to me because that phrase means a lot to me because it's true for one. Sometimes I don't feel like that, so it's important for me to say those things out loud. And 
I feel like speaking, saying these things and saying that out loud brings things into fruition. Saying things out loud in words are powerful. They have domino effect. Having that, you know, as a chorus, I think it's important. I want people to feel that, you know, people like me, oppressed people, black people, queer people, to be able to say these things and feel, to get, help them get through the, the BS they're getting through, you know. Have a moment of light, you know. And um, that's what that song is for me. You know, I'm alive, I'm alive, and don't be surprised. And that's Thorn Shade. <laughs> that's just straight up Thorn Shade that the people, like, who don't want us to be alive, who don't want us to feel like we exist, who don't want us to feel happy about who we are. That's just a shade. Like, don't be surprised. Yes, you did so much to me, but I'm still here. Shout out to Celie from The Color Purple. I'm here, you know what I'm saying? Like, I still exist, I'm, I'm here, and I ain't going nowhere. Don't be surprised. I'm alive, I'm alive, don't be surprised. I'm This episode of The Rise of Charm City was produced by Allie Post and Stacia Brown. It is brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM with financial support from the Robert W. Deutsch Foundation and listeners like you. Production assistance was provided by Marsha Jews. Our theme music is produced by Mark Gunnery of the Center for Emerging Media. For photos related to Baltimore's LGBTQ communities and the people you just heard talking about them, visit theriseofcharmcity.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. You can find and listen to The Rise of Charm City as a podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast providers.